Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Take Cast. My name is Davis Maddock. You can find me on Twitter at Davis Maddock. Stick with me through this sore throat, just introducing the episode with Matt Kelly, the podfather, Fantasy Mansion. He finally made his way to the show. I'm actually going to be releasing this episode in two parts. You are about to hear the first part where we go over a lot of topics from the NFL draft, from the fantasy football environment, from Matt's life, uh, you know, branding the fantasy mansion, how he became the podfather. And uh, of course, Matt was the perfect take cast guest. He was excellent. We are sponsored by dailyrodo.com, the best projections in the industry. You can get 10% off using the promo code Rory. And we are, of course, sponsored by RotoExperts.com with the NFL 365 package that I lead up. You can get 10% off of their projections and rankings with the promo code MATIC. All right, everyone, bringing in the man, the myth, the legend, Matt Kelly, Fantasy Mansion. I've been waiting for a really good time to have you on the show because this is, this is going to be a long show. If you're tuning in to get your 30-minute sound bites, this is... This is not going to be that episode. We're gonna, there's going to be a lot of takes. We're going to talk football. We're going to talk branding. There's going to be a lot going on in this episode. Matt, how you doing, buddy? The podfather is on the take cast at last. We had a gestation period. You had to let this one percolate, Davis. We couldn't roll me out in episode 234. Let it percolate. These takes have now ripened just right this is just this is the time this is the you are just you you have great instincts for podcasting because you are striking at the moment when the iron is hottest we have so many takes there there's gonna be a bunch of takes we're gonna do a little bit of uh history of the mansion before we start uh unleashing some stuff because you know the people they want to know about more than just football they want to know the man, the man behind the take. So this is this is going to expose me as a non-patron fraud, but I want the backstory of the mansion. How, how did Matt Kelly become the mansion? Well, that's interesting in that it's not interesting at all. I have good answers for every question on this show sheet except this one. I would love to have a better answer to this one, but what actually happened was I was preparing my Twitter profile and I had to go find an avatar. And at the time, a lot of the avatars were not your actual headshot. The time that we, I started in Twitter was like 2012. A lot of people were doing cartoons. I think Pat Mayo still has a Simpsons cartoon. A few of us still are, are holding on to the... Yeah, it's like, it's like you and Mayo and Reeves are all still hanging on. Right, we're hanging on to our, you know, you know, the, the retro avatars. So I went out and I found this avatar that I thought best fit my personality, which was the werewolf drinking a martini, not because I'm super hairy, but because, you know, when I get in front of a microphone, I transform into this other person who has some snobbery, but also is just wildly out of control. And so I thought that would be a great avatar. And then I was looking at this avatar thinking, what the heck is my Twitter handle going to be? And then I don't know what happened. I just looked at it. And I go, well, fantasy mansion. This guy looks like he's in a mansion, one of those cocktail parties. Yeah, he's, he's, in, he's, in the, he's in the main room at Gatsby's mansion. That's it. That's it. So I'm the fantasy guy at the Gatsby's. If they want to talk football, they know where I'm at. And in a corner somewhere, a secluded corner, you know, I'm holding court. 
That's me. That's the mansion. So how long have you been grinding the fantasy football game? I don't even know if I know an answer to this one. 2012, I started fantasy football, which is very late in life. I was doing fantasy baseball 10 years earlier. and No I way. Oh, yeah. You yeah. were doing fantasy baseball? You oh, were, I love you fantasy were... baseball. Oh, yeah. Still, I remember. You like fantasy baseball? I remember how I got hooked. I got hooked because I took over my friend's team. He was going to Germany, and he wasn't sure about internet connectivity or setting lineups in Germany, given the time change. So he was worried. He said, listen, I need you to be my shadow owner of my fantasy team when I go study abroad. And I said, sure. And I remember I picked up Raphael for Cal when he was a rookie with the Braves. He then went out and stole like 60 bases in the second half of the season. We won the steals category, five, five, five by five uh, scoring. And he won the league. And I said, well, I, I think I won that league for you, by the way. That doesn't – he said, oh, this is my third championship. Well, eh, really, two championships, and I won you the second championship. You're welcome. And we can thank Raphael Fercal and Matt Kelly. But then at that point, I'm like, I got to get in this league. I got to – I got to – I love this. This idea that you could just have these players. They're your players. And, and I mean, you, fantasy baseball, like when you get right down to it, it's way more of like a math-based game even than fantasy oh, yeah. football is. There's like a lot more speculation and luck and stuff involved in fantasy football versus fantasy baseball. When I started paying attention to OPS and I started paying attention to you know, strikeout to walk rate, I came up at a time when if you were paying attention to a pitcher's strikeout to walk rate, you were ahead of the curve. Like now, right. you know, with fan graphs, right, and, and the, 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 you know, you're talking about the mile per hour, not of the pitch, the mile per hour and the launch angle of the ball leaving the bat. Like that's – I'm, I'm far removed from that. Like that, that stuff is just interesting to watch from afar. But what I saw when I started with football was, oh, wow, a lot of these principles that I know from baseball really don't exist in football. So – it's probably coming. I'll start applying some of those learnings from baseball to football, and that's how Player Profiler happened. When did Player Profiler itself start? Like, were you, were you big on the metrics? Were you big in on the combine before Player Profiler started and you just saw this big gap in the market? Because before you started Player Profiler, this was back like when Rotoviz first started. To it was find- right after Rotoviz, yeah. So to find all of those metrics when I was doing prospect work in like 2013, 2014, literally you had to go to NFL Draft Scout, which is, I mean, they do, they've been doing good work for a lot of time, but that website is such a gigantic eyesore, it's insane. Right, so I was opening up seven browsers, Davis, and five spreadsheets, and I said there has to be a better way. I'm going to go ahead and build a user experience for myself because I worked in web design and web development, not a coder, but on the business side, I said, well, I'm going to work with some guys that I know also do fantasy that are technical and we're going to put together a solution so that I can have all these metrics on guys in one place, right? Cause baseball had fan graphs, as I mentioned earlier. Well, eventually I realized actually pretty quickly that a lot of people could use this and I should just put this out there in the world and see what happens, see how much traffic it generates. And then pretty soon I realized, oh, we needed a podcast. 
because they need to explain these metrics to people. They don't know what production premium means. They don't know what speed score is. They don't know the origins of the metrics. They don't know how they can be applied, right? So I started a podcast that was very nerdy. Like, okay, so now we're going to look at this metric. And uh, so this is a, something that measures the, the player's size-adjusted athleticism. And then I don't know what happened. It was like episode three or four. I just went on a riff. I, I don't know. I don't and, even and remember what when, it was that's about. When was born. That's I just when the decided to say, yeah, I just, I left this, I left my body in front of the microphone I, and I floated off and did a riff and I came back and then there was engagement after that. Like that moved the needle and it felt great. So it was invigorating. And I said, well, okay, that's what I'm going to do the show from now on. And the beauty is, the beauty is since then, I have been given license by the community to have maximum shenanigans and to be this outsized personality and to be the Don Rickles of fantasy football. And part of the reason I'm able to do it is because I am the founder, originator of player profilers. So I have these metrics background supporting me. If I was just a guy out here, uh, you know, operating as Krusty the Clown, I wouldn't be taken seriously. But the beauty is because Player Profiler is the foundation where it started, it allows me to go further with the shenanigans than I would be able to go otherwise. So I think a natural extension of this conversation is when you and I started doing this, daily fantasy football existed, but it was, it was small. FanDuel and DraftKings were pretty small, like when Rotoviz and Player Profiler and uh, the Roto Underworld podcast started. Like it was, it was a very small niche in the industry, and kind of over the last five years, it's grown, it's exploded, and you know, I really went and ran with DFS just because I enjoyed it more. There's a more immediate gratification. And I'm probably a little bit more of a, a gambler inherently than you are. But my question to you. Oh, whoa, whoa, but Davis. I remember when DFS was not considered gambling. It's not gambling. It's a game of skill. You can't call it gambling. And now today there is a FanDuel sports book. We have come full circle. Which I, which I, by the way, was never like, I, I'm still of the position that fantasy sports is of course a game of skill, but of course it's also gambling. Just it the companies. Yeah. The companies just could never economy, say man. That. Right. Yeah. They could just never say it because of the, uh, unlawful Internet Gambling Enforcement Act, which has now been reversed. But my my question to you was, how has DFS changed our world, the, the fantasy football season-long dynasty world? Not as much as you would have thought, right? If you think about the analysts around the industry, it's still subdivided. You still have the Brad Evans, and he focuses on seasonal. And we still have you know, Dan Back, and he's a DFS guy. And you have Ryan McDowell, who is a dynasty person. And I would have thought there would be a lot more crossover and there would be a lot more movement between these worlds. Now there's best ball and it has its own ecosystem. But you see, rather than there being the, 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 the sort of the versatile analysts moving all around, there's not as many, uh, not as much hybrid content as you would think. And there's not, there are not as many of the, of, of the generalist analysts as you would think. And I feel like sometimes I feel alone in that I am out here doing a dynasty podcast and then I'm jumping on a Roto Grinders DFS show. Um, and so I feel great about it. It's fun to, to, to 
be involved in all these spaces, but I just don't see much crossover. I think that the muggle, right, the non-fantasy person, the non-wizard, I think they assume that it's all mixed and it's all, you know, this, this conglomerate. And it's not at all. I, I, I feel like that. No, because I, I think you're right. I think there are, is a, a limited subset of people who can be good at Dynasty, who can be good at DFS, and who can be good at Season Long. And I play all three a lot because I love football. Uh, I love fantasy sports. And I love the, I love, I mean, there's just nothing better than the immediate gratification of DFS. Though, like, I will say on Sundays for NFL, like, I'm still sweating, uh, like, I, even though the, the financial implications of DFS are far greater for me, uh, I'm still sweating like my home 12-team PPR league. Yeah, this, this is why seasonal is not going anywhere, that exact paradox. And it's why I love all the different formats because I'm sweating them all. I'm sweating my calls I made for that week on the Roto Grinders uh, you know, uh, game night show that I do with Ben Gretsch and Eric McClung. I'm sweating my dynasty league team that is poised for the playoffs. So one thing I will say that has been a huge improvement, and I think that we can thank the analysis in DFS, is the start-sit decisions. Five years ago, start-sit was a lot harder. It was a lot more random. Now, because of the, the, the lineup generation and the, and the DFS analysis, you can be a lot more confident when you start and sit guys. I know my start sit decision making has become a lot better uh, because of the principles and the learnings uh, that you know have been acquired uh, through DFS over the last five years. I mean, that's a good point. Like, I think that projection models, both season long projection models and like micro level game projection models, would not be where they are now without DFS because there wouldn't be as much demand for it. Yeah, I wasn't paying attention to game totals five years ago, for example. But right. now I want exposure to that Rams-Saints game when I'm setting my seasonal lineup. And that right. was like, not like setting a decision your, point five years ago. Yeah, setting your lineups in 2014, you, you wouldn't load up whatever sports book and look at the team totals and then right. pick the running back from the highest total game. You, you'd probably look at like... I guess you probably look at like fantasy points allowed by the other defense and, and stuff like that. Like it just, it wouldn't, it, it really has changed sort of the um, micro level processing of decision-making. I, I would say that's definitely an impact the DFS has had. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Stacking more the whole thing. Oh yeah. The concept of like, Oh, if you draft your quarter, you should start a quarterback. And if there's a close one, you should go with the wide receiver that's on his team. Yeah. Like exactly. that, that stuff really, that thought did not exist in fantasy football then. Cause like, yeah, I so, guess, so the broader concepts that DFS has brought to the table have been, yeah, greatly valuable. Which is, I think it's pretty cool. Cause I, I think there was a, a time where the season long fantasy football people were trying to like the strict season long fantasy football people were doing like DFS advice. And I think somewhere along the lines, a lot of people have realized that that's not my lane. Like that's not the lane that I should be in. I should be in the, the start sit lane or whatever, but, but still gain skills from the DFS mind state. Well, the specialization across the industry speaks to the health of the industry. The fact that you can have so many people be successful in a specialist role shows that there's growth and that the, the, the audience is, is, is huge and appreciates expertise. 
and they know good content when they see it. All this is great news for the industry. I mean, there is a lot of money in the fantasy football industry. I like that is that is just one hundred percent true. It's this is a very good time to be an established platform. But I would say, uh, if I was like trying to start out right now, I I would feel really discouraged because there's just so much content. What I would say on that is, if you build something very good, it will come eventually. I don't know when it'll come. But when we decided to launch Player Profiler, we invested extra tens of thousands of dollars in the user experience, in the design, in making sure that the shit was cool, man. And there's no banner ads. So investing in the platform, investing in the content, and not making compromises to kind of, you know, pull out the the the, the nickels and dimes along the way, that investment does pay off. That, be confident um, if, if it's done well that in, in, in the content is at, at a level of quality and that you're, fill, you're fill, all you need to do is fill a need. As long as there is a need, we talked about this, there did not exist this one unified place to go right. to find all of these data points. We filled what was, I thought, a business need across the industry. And if you see that there is a gap and you can be the one to fill it, just execute well and don't compromise, that would be my advice to anyone starting out. It is easy to get discouraged, but so, so there's this still is, plenty uh, of room. There's plenty of bandwidth for more players in this industry. This is a, this is a good transition point for us because I wanted to talk to you about branding. As everyone who listens to the show knows, I love branding. I love to brand myself. I love to talk branding. I love to talk about uh, online entrepreneurship and all of this. So I, I want you to speak a little bit deeper about finding that patch of real estate. Well, that's it. If you're going to sit down and, and transition to a new industry, it doesn't matter what it is. Let's say you're going to get into the insurance business or you're going to get into fantasy football. My advice is always to find that patch of real estate, as you said, build a very deep foundation, erect a skyscraper, and then me personally, align it with your, your personality. And my personality is outgoing, um, a little bit combative, vocal, opinionated. So on my particular skyscraper, I, I erected, you know, cannons, right? So I have cannon turrets all around us. So I could just, you know, shoot buzzards out of the sky that want to drop bad reviews on my show or whatever it is. But there is a way, and, and I, this took me years to realize, and, 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 and some bad tweets and some nuked relationships to realize that you can be aggressive and you can be edgy without being a troll. It took five That's years yeah. for me to find that line. And now I feel like I feel pretty comfortable where that line is, where I had no idea what I was doing when I first got started. That's why I think that what Twitter should do and all social media platforms should do is to get rid of the block button and to go to something closer to like a timeout where you can set someone and put them on timeout. I would love to be able to put a follower of mine on a one-week timeout because that person's behavior can change radically in a year of learning all these lessons about decorum within the community. So the idea that I had people blocked from three years ago, 
I'm never going to go back and unblock them. I don't have time. Sorry. I'm not sorry. You shouldn't have been an asshole, but it really is a failing of the platforms that they're not a little bit more flexible in that area. And I've heard Dorsey interviewed, for example, yeah. the CEO of Twitter, and they've talked about going to that model, and I'm excited about that. It's a pretty interesting model to be able to put someone on timeout. That's all they need, man. A year later, you're so much different on the, you're between your, your, your day one and day 366 on social media. You're a different person, man. I think I would put a lot of people on timeout. Yeah, I would too. <laughs> a lot of people need a timeout. They just block like, uh, too far though. I try not to block people. The only people I block are the mega people. That's like pretty much like I'll oh. let you, I'll let you yeah. troll me. I'll let you, I'll let you be like it just because I like part of being trolled is fun. Sometimes it's annoying, but like really the only people I block are the mega people. But if there was a one week timeout feature, I would give that to a lot of people. Hey, listen, the, the other one, that's easy, an easy cheat for blocking is the dog Abby. If it's a dog yeah, Abby, dog Abby, it's often bad. It's like, now, again, I'm sure there's some great dog Abby people out there, but just so you know, you are inadvertently affiliating yourself with a bad cohort of people on social media by going dog Abby. I do not recommend hashtag dog Abby. Now, uh, I have a rule of thumb where you're allowed to be mean to me right? As long as you don't call me a name to my face in a way that's not funny. Like, like we, we talk about, you know, Pulp Fiction, right? We say, well, you know, something about a dog, but a dog has personality. Personality goes a long way, right? The dog, Avi, if they have personality, personality goes a long way. If you, are, at, if you are even a, a, a modicum of humor, that you're bringing to the table, you're not going to get blocked, man. You're fine. You could be a total dick. Just don't be humorless about it. If you're going to be humorless, you're fucking gone. Yeah, like if you're just mean, there's no yeah. point in me. Like if, if, you, if you're like making fun of me, but you're like funny, I probably won't block you. But if you're just mean, I'll actually most likely what I'll do is I'll probably just mute you. Yeah, you, well, I have a whole process where I ignore it the first time, then I mute, and then I block. So I actually, like, you know. I actually report people. Like if, if, oh, if, really? like, if like, oh yeah. Like if, if some like mega person is like trolling me and like, I go and look at their tweets and they just have like awful, hateful shit on there. I, I will report them. And like, I would I obviously it's not a 100% sex success rate. I'd say like 50% success rate of getting people banned or like having their tweets be deleted. I'm a huge advocate for Twitter more than I ever have been. And you know why I'm a big advocate for Twitter? Because I've spent time on YouTube. Once you spend time in the wild west of social media where you can't post anything without getting hit with a homophobic slur almost immediately, you appreciate Twitter more. so much more. It's a much more healthy, much healthier social media platform. Now you talked about branding earlier. So I have two things that I've branded. We branded our platform of Roto Underworld and we wanted to be edgy, and I tried to, you know, I, I, I'm, I was pretty transparent uh, and upfront early on that, hey, we're trying to be the cool, edgy platform that's also a little bit nerdy, so we're trying to balance out the nerdy with some cool edginess, and, and that's how we ended up coming up with, you know, the, the evil eyes out of the darkness, and when it comes to the Podfather per persona, the 
werewolf drinking the martini, I decided early on that it would be, it would be different uh, if I were to you know, create a persona. There weren't that many personas. There were a lot of people just being themselves in the industry. And I thought that one of the ways, and I'm just looking for ways that I can separate myself, either fill a need or separate yourself or both in this case. And I fundamentally believe that if you create a persona where you're amplifying an aspect of your personality or you're reinterpreting yourself in a way where you're still yourself, but you're just a bigger version of yourself, for example, like once, sometimes I get accused of being disingenuous in that way, of being fake, but I don't see that as being fake. I see that as showmanship. And being a showman is fun. I have more fun acting out in front of people than I do just being myself. That's yeah, just being my a more interesting version of yourself, which is something we've talked about on this show before. Like I, the person that I am 24 hours a day is not the person that I am on podcasts. I'm a little bit more interesting, a little bit more talkative, a little bit more brash. And I don't think there's anything fake or phony about that. I think we're creating an entertainment product. That's exactly right. Yeah. The Greatest Showman is literally the most popular movie among my daughter's cohort. So if she has a friend over and they want to watch a movie, the first movie I hear most often is Greatest Showman. Literally one of the best movies and most popular movies for all age groups in the last five years. So you know, P.T. Barnum was doing something right. But also it's, it's funny. What I find interesting, and I've talked about this on my podcast, Roto Underworld Radio, a bunch of times, is the snobbery in this particular industry which leads people away from doing what we're talking about, of acting out a little bit more. Because I think there's this underlying concern that you're going to be tagged as disingenuous or criticized as you know, a, a, a being someone who is grandstanding, for example. And it's just very strange to me because the last time I checked, this is fantasy football. Right, and who, I just don't understand. Wanna, who would not want a grandstand? Who who wants to take themselves that seriously? This is what I'm saying. It's not supposed to be serious, and yet this industry happens to be populated by a significant number of self-serious people. And I just don't find fantasy football precious at all. It's a silly game, but in a world that is increasingly more serious, I think that silly games are needed. So I fantasy feel like football, we are is, fantasy football is a great escape for people. And I also think it's really interesting because a lot of people that like football are more conservative, right-leaning sorts of people. But a lot of the people that like the math and like the decision-making and the, the thought of it are left-leaning people. Like a lot of the people that are really into fantasy football would be more younger, sort of left-leaning kinds of people. And so I think it creates this really interesting mix of people where it all comes together. That's right. Yeah, it's a great. And one of the things that I think that we're missing in our culture right now, or not missing, but I think has been leaking out is the nuance, right? And I think that in fantasy football, it's an, it's an opportunity for us to, to really, a lot of these podcasts, my podcast, your podcast, it's really an exploration of nuance, which is really missing. And, and there are a lot of, you know, uh, varying types of personalities and people from various spectrums in, in the political spectrum, uh, the socioeconomic spectrum, all participating in this thing called fantasy football. And when you have this sort of this unified leisure time, right, that 
I've yeah. actually, I've actually, in order to justify my existence and feel good and sleep at night, that I'm doing something so frivolous, I've studied the economics and sociology of leisure time. And I've come to appreciate it more, what we bring to the table more, that it is necessary culturally for there to be leisure time and therefore uh, for us to provide this outlet. I mean, so that's that the way, whole I feel point a lot better about myself. It's the whole point of, of, of society in general for there to be the opportunity for leisure time. When, when people were hunter-gatherers or where they were living on their own, your whole working day had to exist to survive. But now that, now that survival is sort of a given, leisure time has to exist and it has to provide a service. If you're, if you're not really accessing leisure time, it, it's going to influence your mentality in a weird way. That's right. We're not obstetricians, right? I get it. We're not delivering babies. What we're doing isn't that important, but we do play a role in society that I believe has value. And, it, it, and that was, you know, to, to be someone who focuses on fantasy football for the majority of their day, it, that rationalization was important for me personally, that exploration. Yeah, because... I mean, you do need to feel like what you're doing every day matters to someone somewhere. Like you don't want to feel, you don't want to feel like your job is just totally menial. No one wants that. No. So I feel great. I feel pretty, I feel pretty good too. Yeah. Uh, what is your favorite response, Ben, from a podcast listener who did not like the show? Oh, there are a lot of people that do not like our show. But on the other side of the, the coin, there it's hard to find a more loyal listener base than the Roto Underworld Minions. So, and I think that that's been cultivated by design, that those that appreciate the show feel like that they have to walk through fire, walk across hot coals, whatever, however you want to think about it, in order to get to the other side. And there is this additional level of appreciation that you have to get over the initial shock to the system that is our show, that is my personality, that is this, the, this whole approach, this whole F you approach, F you pay me, F you pay me approach. And it's just, no matter what you do as a listener, you, there's, you will, you, I, I can say this flatly with 100% confidence, no listener is ever going to bring me down. Ever, 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 ever. A lot have tried. A lot have tried. And not one has been successful because I will boomerang it back and turn whatever hate you direct at me into content. That is my favorite thing to do. So the, the worst reviews on iTunes, I've already tweeted out. Too late, buddy. You're not going to get to me. And, and this was my favorite. This is the best. The, the best is when you can convert someone, when they say, I hated you the first time. And then my buddy said, you should try it again. So I tried it again and I despise you the second time. And then for whatever reason, I tried you a third time because I just had to hear your take on DK Metcalf and by gosh, by golly, holy shit, I actually agreed with you and I found myself laughing and liking you and now you have a loyal listener. That's crazy. The ability how, to convert is pretty wild. It's crazy. I love it. That's, that makes me so happy. And then the, the, those are the most loyal listeners that we have are those that walk through fire to get to the other side. I think that people who don't like me would honestly never listen to this show. 
I think that I think that anyone who tunes into this show probably already likes me. It's hard for me to imagine someone wandering into this show and being like, I wonder what this is about. I, I'm going to reserve judgment on Davis Maddock and wait to just Can see. Can I tell you happens. something? Can I tell you something? You may. I have never understood that there, it, why you're not more universally beloved. Because when I think of you and when I talk about you to others in this industry, it's always like this light is shining, like there's this aura around you and there's this sort of gravitational pull, right? A moth to a flame thing. Well, I know what people don't like about me. Of course you want to be around Davis. There's nothing not to like about Davis. And so when I see anyone not liking you, it's always disorienting to me. I'm very unapologetic about the things I believe. Some of the political stuff really rubs people the wrong way. Okay. Some of the, some of the, uh, like, like the, like Josh Jacobs is actually like a great example. Like I'm just, I'm, I'm unwilling to hear an argument about like his shift, his like shifty hips. Like just because it just, it's so non-scientific and non-falsifiable to me that like, I think a lot of people in fantasy football Twitter are like, no, you know, I think there's a good point here. I think some people like to take the middle ground and I'm just very, I, in general, uh, I am uninterested in the middle ground. And I think that rubs, uh, you know, a small percentage of people the wrong way. I think that percentage is getting smaller and smaller. You might've been ahead of your time. My guess is in five years, all those individuals on the outer limits will have melted away. And, and also, you know what? No, like there's just, there's never going to be anyone who's universally beloved, you know, like there's just also that just sometimes you rub people the wrong way. And that's okay. I, I, as someone who's been rich rebar is pretty universally loved. You, you know what? Rich might rich be rebar, the one guy. Rich rebar is pretty damn close. He might be the one guy, but like, I guess there's just a, a thing where I've been extremely online and like extremely on Twitter and on podcasts since I was like 18 years old. And some people made a judgment on me when I was 19 writing articles for Rotoviz that might not even match up with me at 26, but they, they've always had that taste in their okay. mouth of who I was then. Okay. Okay. Maybe, maybe there may be this tinge of look at me that they think that is coloring their perception of you. I mean that that is well, and don't I, forget Odell Beckham. Some people, some I am people still genuinely, go. I'm genuinely confused about why a, a, anyone would put you on a, a a list of you know least favorite analysts. But it, honestly, just it would be confusing. That might be the only thread that I could even go down and, and possibly uh, empathize with someone or, or see someone else's perspective. But otherwise, man, you're doing a great job. And, and you're only going to be more and more popular as the years go on. Trust if me. Only, if only Odell Beckham had busted. If Odell had busted, who knows what my career path would be these or, days. Or, or Jeff Janis ascended to – Yeah, or, or if Jeff Janis had become like a receiver star. Yeah, that would, have been, that would have been something. I think I could have, I could have taken that one to my grave. Not I mean, that I would Jeff Janis, he didn't have to be superstar. He could just beat Randall Cobb-level productive. Right. It would have been a win. I mean, I think the fact that he won that, like, well, I guess they lost that game, but the fact that he caught that Hail Mary justified everything for me. Everything that I had ever said about him was justified in that moment. Forever. 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 God, I love that one guy. one of the greatest moments of my life. And when I talk about that as one of the greatest moments of my life, it, 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 there is some bewilderment there. But all I say is what a lot of people say. You had to be there. 
You just had to be there. I mean, I remember where I was. I remember and you had to I be on social there. media. Yeah. You know, whenever people criticize social media, I remember that moment and social media elevated me off the floor. Like yeah. I was floating because of this, this groundswell of enthusiasm around what was happening. And I would never go back and put that social media genie back in the bottle like a lot of people talk about. Absolutely not. We're better off because of it. No, no, like, uh, I mean, that, that moment, I, don't, I would say probably top five, like, most memorable moments of my life. Like, yeah. it's just, just unbelievable, that moment. It, it, it was because it was unbelievable. It was real life. It was like right. a movie. It was a movie. It was, it a, was movie. a movie, man, but it was real. So why won't Nick Chubb truthers leave my mentions? This has been, this has been something that's been plaguing me for, this like, the last the time last six months Nick because when when Carlos Hyde got traded I you know we were actually recording a podcast live and I went through all my leagues and was trying to add Nick Chubb and I was I tweeted because I was so frustrated I'm in a bunch of 12 team leagues and he was owned in all of them already I was I was I was mad but also I didn't really understand why and ever since I tweeted that these people have just nonstop been in my mentions about Nick Chubb well you know why? He's one of the best running backs to ever be a college running back, to ever enter college, but he got hurt. He had a massive catastrophic injury that could have ended the career of other running backs, but because he is this cyborg running back, he was able to come back and become the Nick Chubb that we know today. Nick Chubb ran for over 1,500 yards, 14 touchdowns, and caught 18 passes as a true freshman at Georgia against SEC competition. If you need to know the reason why, that's the reason why. That's the reason to love Nick Chubb is to zoom out and to see him for what he really is, which is an exceptional between-the-tackles grinder, one of the best between-the-tackles grinders in the NFL. I mean, he went to the combine and he showed incredible burst, 129.5 91st percentile burst score at, on a surgically repaired knee. This guy is one of the sublime college running backs in the history of the game, and yet he is overrated right now for the same reason Jordan Howard was overrated a couple of years ago. Every year, there is a between the tackles grinder that exceeds expectations and benefits and, and rides this wave of recency bias into the next draft season. And that is Nick Chubb. When you look at his breakaway run rate, his yards created per carry on playerprofiler.com, this guy benefited from the random chance and the random events and outcomes that you see on the football field that are not replicatable year to year. It's one thing if you're Le'Veon Bell and you're catching 60, 70, 80, 90 passes per season. Right. And the yards per carry can oscillate year to year, and, and you still can threaten 300 fantasy points every year. That's fine. Nick Chubb does not have that all-purpose skill set, and Nick Chubb does not yet have that bell cow role on the Cleveland Browns offense because he's not a strong receiver like David Johnson. He might score like 13 touchdowns this year. Like he, he, might just fall, he might just fall ass end into these touchdowns because that offense is going to be so good. Well, that's right. He scored 10 touchdowns, which was three touchdowns above expectation even last year on these long runs. So he may get less long runs, but more red zone opportunities because this will be one of the top five offenses in the league. So 
could be true that he still meets his ADP fantasy point expectations. Right. Right. It may be true, but that doesn't mean that he's not overrated right now. He's currently overrated and overdrafted in dynasty startups. People can get more than he's worth in dynasty trades. His redraft ADP is maxing out his potential. Again, it's in his range yeah, of outcomes. He is, he is totally at his ceiling, though. Right. right. He's being priced at his ceiling across the board because every year there's a between-the-tackles grinder that puts up these huge numbers, whether it be weak run defenses they faced in a small sample, whether it be great run blocking they benefited from in a small sample. But now Nick Chubb has lost his all-pro guard, Kevin Zeitler. And he faces a completely different schedule, likely more difficult run defenses in 2019. And so these external forces will throttle him, and yet the internal forces of the offense improving may balance it out. But that doesn't mean that he's not maxed out. He is. And that doesn't mean there's not a lot better value wherever you find him in drafts whatever ADP slot, you can almost always find a better value, at least in a lot of cases in seasonal leagues, you have running backs with higher floors and higher ceilings at similar ADPs. If the Chiefs don't sign a running back or draft a running back, Damian Williams is going to, should be, like, will be better for him than fantasy? Oh, you can absolutely see that happening because the Chiefs believe in Damian Williams, and there's certain anecdotes that I pay attention to. So, for example, Alex Dunlap from Roster Watch talked to Chiefs coaches at the Combine, and they were raving about Damian Williams. It was unsolicited. They just came out and said, listen, I think he asked a question about Carlos Hyde. And unsolicited, they just said, hey, listen, it's not about Carlos Hyde. It's all about Damian Williams this year. We love him. He is a bell cow back in the truest sense in the NFL. He has an all-purpose skill set. He's strong in the passing game. He has the size to hold up with 200-plus carries. He can run between the tackles. He's explosive on the on, on perimeter runs. What's not to like about Damian Williams? And he said, I don't know what's not to like. It's just he's never done it. Even going back to his time at Oklahoma, he was never the primary back, always part of some committee. So we've never seen it. And historically, when you see that guy go undrafted in fantasy leagues, and then he has this, you know, he's sky every year. There's a guy just like there's a, a Jordan Howard every year. And last year it was Nick Chubb. Well, there's all every year. There's a, an Alex Collins, right? Who is undrafted. He gets the job at, at the halfway point in the season. And the next thing you know, he's a third round pick in seasonal leagues. So that profile, the Alex Collins archetype often busts. So that is what Damian Williams has working against him and why you may be better off going with a Leonard Fournette, for example, who has the pedigree and has a, a, a more solid hold on his role than Damian Williams. But I, I think it's sort of a false choice there. What I, I, I do agree that when you're looking at running backs and situations and skill sets, it, it I mean, what make, situation, it would, make, would, you, it what situation would you choose? You wouldn't it choose would, another situation over Casey running back. Well, that's the thing. That's why it would make sense if you projected Damian Williams to outscore Nick Chubb based on what we know now, that would be logical to me. It's just that in Dynasty, for example, you would prefer 
Yeah, I like him less in Dynasty. Right, because there's less of a risk that he gets usurped by the NFL draft. Right. There's a greater risk that Damian Williams receives significant competition from the NFL draft than Leonard Fournette, for example. So the uh, the high-round draft capital protects running backs and wide receivers, for that matter, uh, in Dynasty from target and touch competition. But when you take a step back... Just because Alex Collins flamed out doesn't mean Damian Williams will. These are different running backs. Damian Williams has incredible size-adjusted athleticism, and he's strong in the passing game. Players like Justin Forsett and Alex Collins that became the it undrafted running back from the year prior, they didn't have those advantages with their profile. So it, it could be the case that – it may be the case. It's a very strong case to be made that Damian Williams is that outlier. And if he slips to the late third round in a seasonal league, yeah, I'm going to push the button on him. I've been pushing the button on him a lot. Uh So we're going to cut part one off right there. Of course, if you guys are enjoying this, part two of this episode will be out very soon. And uh, until then, I hope you guys enjoyed it.